Hello and welcome back to Friends of Europe's uh, Frankly Speaking podcast. Today I'm going to take you under the oceans and see what's happening in the murky waters beneath. Uh, to jo joining us as a special guest today is Yuka Savolainen, who is Director for Vulnerabilities and Resilience at the Hybrid Center of Excellence in Helsinki. That's an organization jointly supported by NATO and the EU to build capabilities for, uh, to counter hybrid warfare. Yuka is also a senior officer of the Finnish Coast Guard and served uh, on the, the EU police mission in Afghanistan and is an expert on border security uh, at the European Union in Brussels. Uh, good morning to you. And also with us is Chris Kremnidis Courtney, uh, my fellow senior fellow here at uh, uh, Friends of Europe in the uh, Peace, Security and Defense Program, and an expert on hybrid warfare and our digital future. Well, Yuka, let me start with you. Um, the, we, we're going to look beneath the oceans at some of the uh, security challenges that uh, have been highlighted since the start of the uh, war in Ukraine. Um, the underwater explosions that wrecked the Nord Stream uh, gas pipelines from Russia to Germany uh, in September of 2022, suddenly propelled seabed, seabed security into the headlines. Why is this such an issue now, and what's going on down there? Thanks for inviting me, and uh, thanks for this question, which is very timely. I think the, uh, the potential of the Nord Stream pipeline explosions uh, has not even been explored in its entirety, because... Uh, we, what we know is certainly there was an explosion and this happened all, already more than half a year ago and we still have no credible attribution. So we don't have anybody, nobody is saying for sure with evidence who did it and for what reason. And now if we look at the potential of, of this, this event, there is a possibility to sabotage the relations between Ukraine Germany and United States in the war of Ukraine. And of course, it has a huge impact in the popular mindset in, in Russia itself. So somebody's playing with very big cards here. Also, we survived this winter without a, a significant energy crisis, but uh, this was also a significant threat. Had we had much uh, colder and uh, had we had uh, more detonations in the in the in the other gas pipelines in the in the North Sea area, we could really have had a a serious shortage of energy in in Europe. So I think this altogether shows how important this underwater infrastructure can be, and in the future crises, it can it will be exploited one day to create a, a really big uh, uh, societal crisis in, in some of our countries. Well, that's fairly scary. Um, and of course, under, underwater, we don't just have gas pipelines. We also have cables that carry all of our communications, our internet traffic, our uh, uh, banking system is dependent on underwater cables as well as space. Um, so, Chris, what's Europe doing about seabed security? What's NATO doing and uh, what needs to be done? Well, thank you, Paul, and good morning, uh, Yuka. Uh, I think the first thing is to look at is, you know, the entire idea of undersea 
uh, critical infrastructure began in Europe in 1850 with the first cable between France and, and Great Britain. Uh, and about seven, eight years later, you had the first transatlantic cable, the telegra <laughs> telegraphic cable laid between the two continents. So I think it's, you know, this is sort of the home of this issue where it all started. Uh, and and as, as you recall, Paul, back in 2019, Friends of Europe, we had a uh, cable, a, a undersea cable incident in our tabletop exercise for the EU, NATO, and the private sector to see how they would deal with it, to really put the issue uh, in front of them. And, uh, you know, we've been trying to sort of raise this awareness, but it really took the incident that you could just so well describe in September of last year to really bring it to the fore. And so I think there's a few things happening. The first is on the NATO side, they have, um, you know, NATO for years has had underwater research, you know, at the center down in La Spezia in Italy. Uh, they've always had consortia doing all kinds of research on underwater surveillance, on underwater vehicles and whatnot. Um, that's ongoing. Uh, there's a new NATO cell that was stood up in February in the NATO sections office, uh, supposedly to coordinate undersea infrastructure. Um, I'm not sure how, uh, I mean, I think it's useful for um, sharing information and whatnot, but you know, the real, the real public private connection and role there is between the state and the private companies. And I think NATO can sort of, um, you know, share information and whatnot, but I'm not, I, I'm not sure how much we should expect that cell to be able to do. On the EU side, you're seeing a lot more new activity from the European Defense Agency. They have an ongoing program that could become a PESCO program. They're doing a study on capability gaps and tech solutions to underwater surveillance and intervention. And then you look at the individual national programs. You know, the French have a uh, 2022 have a seabed warfare strategy. So it's a, you know, very military. You, you would think it's a, the French have a very military approach because they're spending a lot on developing undersea drones and anti-mine robots. They're looking at being able to go down to depths of 6,000 meters, which is, you know, kind of a standard for if you want to surveil and intervene on these types of things. Uh, but more importantly, I think if you look in France and Italy and others on the private sector side, this is where you really have companies like Orange Marine, uh, a, a large French company that if you're if you're laying cable or fixing an undersea cable anywhere in the Atlantic and a lot of the Indian Ocean, it's probably a French company doing it. And it's probably a French company or a British company or someone else. But Orange Marine is a big player in this arena. So, you know, in France, they've already had a very well-developed commercial side. I think the military is catching up. Uh, for the Italians, it's, uh, you know, very similar. There's a, a large company there, Sparkle, from the Tim Group that has signed a deal with the Italian Navy to provide surveillance assistance uh, to share undersea maps and whatnot, and that's been ongoing. But what's really interesting, what the Italians are trying to do is um, they've taken a study from the UK National Physics Lab. So the UK National Physics Lab did a test to see, can you take the existing cable of Fiber optic cables can detect things based on the water pressure of things moving by or earthquakes or whatnot. And they found a way to turn underwater cable infrastructure into a global sensor system. Now, how sensitive it is, we don't know yet, but the Italians are trying to leverage that saying, hey, we have these existing cables. Can we use them already as a surveillance system? And of course, detecting an earthquake and detecting a submarine are two very different things. But the Italian approach is very much in, in the surveillance arena. Um, 
The UK is also continuing with testing undersea drones. Germany is looking more to optimize existing data and, in, and infrastructure rather than building anything new. There's a cooperative uh, activity with Germany, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden on surveillance in the region. So there's a lot of activity that uh, from this awakening from September, um, and we could talk a little later about sort of some of the challenges and the costs and, and some of the other challenges to overcome. But I think Europe has awakened. Uh, there's a lot of activity going on, but it's sort of, um, you know, what that will mean in real terms remains to be seen in the future. Yeah, and I, I know that, um, you know, I, I was talking to somebody who in the European Commission who's been lo looking into this stuff, working on it, and even getting European member states to share the information with each other about where their underwater infrastructure is, uh, is, is quite a challenge. It wasn't, it didn't come naturally, let's say. Uh, and then the question of whether this should be uh, done with by the EU or whether it should be done in NATO is also uh, a bit of a challenge from what I hear. Yuka, uh, um, what, new, what new developments are there sort of looking at, you know, the hostile forces or potentially hostile potential adversaries? Uh, what new developments uh, are there that we should be uh, concerned about that are making this more of a challenge? What we know is uh, that Russians have had uh, long-lasting programs in, in uh, deep sea uh, deep sea operations and they seem to have specific specifically built uh, submarines who can go there and pick a cable from three kilometers and of course if you do this kind of sabotage now in a very deep sea this the reparation will simply take a hell of a lot of time and they have actually given a demonstration one or two years ago they uh, a couple of cables in uh, in North Norway were cut and even dragged uh, a big, uh, some kilometers away from its site, just to showcase that this is what we can do. And so if we have uh, a military capacity and an idea that has been tested, then we need, we should put it in on the list of our existential threats and, uh, and certainly at the right moment, some cuts of cables in the over the Atlantic would damage very much the economy and, and political life in, a, in the transatlantic community, would be very dangerous. So I think this, is, uh, this needs to be taken seriously and uh, this must be seen as, as a, a naval operational requirement and strategic requirement in, in longer run, because uh, right, as Chris rightly said, the it will be this is all private time, uh, private business, and the, which means that finally the, the consumer will pay. But uh, and the states will never have the uh, and the navies will not have the capacity to repair repair this kind of cable cuts. So it will be a private business. But what uh, the states can do, I, I come back to the where I started from the attributes. So the, the risk of uh, this kind of a uh, sabotage is very high if uh, if they uh, if the adversary knows that they can come out of it and uh, they will not be caught red-handed. And on the contrary, if we if they think they will most likely be evidence based on evidence, they will be shown to be the guilty one. It turns the the whole political impact that they they are looking for 
it turns it upside down because should it be that uh, we don't have electricity or banks or something in Europe or the United States and if we immediately show that okay thank you Russians you did it here's the evidence they, 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 our population will be furious against them if we cannot show who did it and they will of course have a very good imagination in, in delivering uh, nice stories that would mean that uh, our population is angry at our governments so here again the attribution needs to be taken seriously which means that we need to have a capacity to detect what is going on to some extent we cannot prevent this kind of operations you simply can't can sabotage and detonate or cut cables this cannot be prevented in advance but we should be able to show this happened and identify somebody who is moving in the area and then we come to the question of sharing information and it's national it's classified but of course it's very classified where are our hydro acoustic sensors it, you just simply cannot give this information away very easily so in this case also in the case of Nord Stream I think it is very possible that uh, it, some western services know exactly who did it but they just cannot say it because it's classified the sensors are classified even that's classified if they don't know it has to be classified too because that's uh, what happens always with the intel community guys they just hate the idea that their capacity would be revealed be it good or bad and i think we are stuck with this problem but i would still put this on the list of uh, of uh, naval forces planners to-do list yeah well I, that's that's very interesting because obviously one of the ways in which the united states in particular the uk uh, got ahead of the russian invasion of uh, uh, ukraine was by declassifying a lot of information which would normally be uh, very very secret and very closely held uh, in order to uh, uh, denounce in advance what the uh, what the russians were up to so maybe people will come to see that that that's valuable also uh, in, in the undersea uh, uh, cables as you described so so then if we can't prevent it what do we do about it other than naming and shaming uh, is is the cutting of undersea transatlantic or uh, cable an act of war that will uh, lead to invoking article 5 it's not quite mentioned in the same way uh, in the in the uh, nato strategic documents as say a cyber attack uh, or an attack in space uh, an attack on critical infrastructure in international waters uh, what do you think chris uh, what 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 needs to be done about it well i, I think just to touch quickly on what uh, Yuka had mentioned, and this gets back to some of the challenges back when Yuka and I were working together in Helsinki at the hybrid COE some years ago, uh, the challenge of attribution and crisis decision-making, because when it comes to hybrid threats against undersea infrastructure like this, um, you think about the, the kinds of things that can knock out uh, cables and pipelines, and you you're talking things like fishing nets, uh, anchor strikes, uh, earthquakes, uh, underwater landslides. There are there are a lot of. I mean, there are there are two cable out out uh, outages globally every week, according to the industry. I mean, there are there are cable. There are th things are happening globally, right? 
And this is partly why the attribution is such a challenge. Like, let's take the example in 2021, uh, the cable between Norway and, and its, its Svalbard Island that a Russian trawler just sort of ran over with his fishing nets and dragged the cable away. Uh, it was a marine research cable um, uh, experiment and whatnot. But they had deniability. Oops, so sorry. It was an accident. I'm so sorry. Right. And so this is what makes it this is partly what makes it so uh, difficult is that a lot of the potential causes are sort of oops accidents, right? That happen globally. If there, there's anchor strikes on cables all the time. And so even though these things are mapped, you know, oh, I'm so sorry. So I think that's 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 one thing we have that makes it such a challenge. It's the same kind of challenge we have on land. And that is, how do you prove it was an accident? It was an operator error. It wasn't broken equipment. It wasn't poor maps or whatnot. And so that's what makes it so difficult. How do you take that? How do you take that kind of, of evidence to a multilateral body like NATO and say, we think we should declare Article 5 on this? I can tell you from having run a few um, exercises like that for bodies like that, that you're not going to get a consensus. Not neither neither at the EU nor at NATO, because there are a lot of nations that say, you know, I, I need a lot more evidence. I need I need a lot more I need a lot more certainty to take this uh, back to my capital and say this is what we should so you know a, a view we should support. And I think that's that but that gets to the heart of hybrid threats that they're so uh, when they're so difficult to attribute, it makes crisis decision making that much more difficult. So I think that's one thing here is that if we just think about what is normal in the undersea environment, cables are one thing. Pipelines are a little different because they sit in shallower waters. Um, but they're also a little sturdier uh, in, in some ways. So I think that, you know, cables, there are outages twice a week somewhere in the world. There are, there are ships from every continent, companies that go and fix them. They drag them up to the surface and splice them together and drop them back in the water. Um, Undersea energy infrastructure is a different story. It's a lot. It, it's a lot more complicated. The engineering, the cost, the time to fix is, um, you know, it's not even on the same scale as fixing undersea cables. So I think, you know, it gets us back to the attribution and crisis decision making challenges that we need to overcome. And this is, you know, this is if this was easy, we would have done it by now. So is this a, um, an asymmetrical vulnerability? Because we in the West uh, use a lot of, uh, all our systems run on these cables and on these underwater pipelines and so on. We're very dependent on them. Russia, I assume, is much less dependent on undersea infrastructure. Um, what about China? How, how dependent is China or not on undersea infrastructure? And is there some kind of, undersea balance of terror that we can create uh, that will somehow keep our systems safe by putting the other side's systems at risk? Or is that not possible because of the asymmetry, Yuka? Important and timely questions. First of all, uh, from the technical viewpoint, I think, uh, yes, West is more dependent on these systems because uh, it's, uh, the adversary here actually is now uh, mainly the, the huge geopolitical and geoeconomic uh, 
uh, entity that uh, contains the uh, Eurasian continent main parts of the eastern parts of China with its huge economic potential and population Russia with its huge uh, natural resources and then the other territories around that where the competition is just about to start so it's a continental issue it, uh, there is nowhere such amount of uh, cables etc as, as we have it in uh, in the Atlantic between North America and, and Europe so in comparison we are more vulnerable and then can we have a, a a deterrence and i think this is really an asymmetric issue because uh, you know nobody thinks of this but you don't find a commander in a western democratic society whose actions are based on rule of law you don't find the general or admiral who signs an order to go and cut these and these and these commercial cables because this he this will be kept secret for a while but after at some point this there is a quite a big risk that uh, the issue will be taken into a court where this person personally is asked to to repay the damages to the company who is owning owning these cables so here we have another another issue which uh, which shows an asymmetric uh, conflict between us and authoritarian regimes who wouldn't think of this kind of problems so i i think we cannot deter by saying that uh, if we don't like you we will cut your undersea cables to the problem at, uh, at uh, still to the volume we ha can have accidents which have a local local impact but in the case of war if we have almost all of the Atlantic cables cut, then we know somebody's doing this on purpose. And it, it is very clearly, of course, very close to an act of war. Or it should be regarded as an act of war, depending again on how can we show that uh, credibly enough to our political decision makers and citizens that these guys did it. After all, well, NATO has never, was never tested in terms of, of uh, declaring wars. But it's always, of course, no matter what uh, what the uh, strategic or operational planners write in their papers, matters of a peace and war are always political decisions. So they will be taken in the situation based on the evidence that there is at hand and the political uh, leeway for maneuvering. So I wouldn't be so worried about that. But I come again, as you see, to, this, to the uh, point that we should be able to show who did what. And as you, Paul, rightly said, uh, you, Americans used this very effectively in the, in the start phase of the Ukrainian war. And I think it's an important example. Somebody must have given political guidance or at least collected political approval in the intelligence community to get prepared to release this kind of information. And I think this can, well, what happens by, by nature, all authorities, the officials, I mean, who are dealing with the issue, they, they are keeping all the secret issues secret, and they continue. They would not reveal anything, and they don't propose revealing anything. So by exercising in advance these kind of uh, patterns, I think this could be uh, possibly very useful, and, and it can make the, the release of information months or, or years faster 
if it has been uh, exercised in advance. So I think this we could study more this what the Americans do, did in Ukraine with relation to uh, potential damages to our our undersea infrastructure. It's a good idea. Great, Chris, your thoughts on that? You know, first of all, I think it's it is historically the cable links in the Atlantic between North America and Europe have always been sort of the thickest lines in the map. But uh, if you look in the Pacific and look at Southeast Asia, that is where a lot of the growth is. And in particular right now, what we're seeing is a lot of growth in cable connections between Asia and Europe. Uh, the Tim Group in Italy is building one now connecting uh, Genoa all the way to India and everywhere in between. So like a great new, you know, a very fast trunk road. You have, um, you have Greece and Egypt building an energy cable to share, take wind, wind and solar power from Egypt and cable it up to Athens to, to supply, you know, to power homes in Athens. So you have, um, you have a lot of growth across the board, but I think if you, um, if you look at Southeast Asia, there's a, that's where the great U.S.-China competition is happening. You have uh, Chinese and American companies competing for the contracts to build the cables uh, across the board, you know, connecting uh, parts of Asia together. And there are, uh, you know, given the terrain on land and given some of the politics on land, it's actually, in a lot of cases, cheaper and easier just to drop a submarine cable uh, in, in Southeast Asia to connect different countries, right? And so I think that's that is where the growth is, and that's where you're. I, that's where I think we're going to see a lot of the competition. Speaking of Asia, you know, and since Taiwan is always in the news, you know, the last year or two we keep seeing the cable between you know Taiwan's Matsu Islands, which are between mainland China and you know between China and Taiwan, the cables keep being cut for different you know by. Um, fishing vessels or other Chinese vessels coming out and cutting them. I mean, that's a, a real indicator because I think if there's ever, I'm not saying that'll happen, but if there was ever any kind of aggression, uh, uh, kinetic aggression against Taiwan by China, the first step would be against the Matsu Islands to knock out um, radar sites, possibly even the seas terrain to launch from. And so I think that's one space to watch as we're seeing that playing out there in that region. Um, I think it's always watching the cable connection between the Matsu Islands and Taiwan is always one to watch. But I think this is also we're seeing this is part of the larger global competition uh, because it's not just can you cut someone's communications, can you monitor them? I mean, these cables are a gold mine for, you know, secret intelligence agencies who want to clamp on and gather the data and sort of figure out what's being said. So I think... Um, you know, that's why the, the, the surveillance of these systems, the protection of these systems is so important. And I think it's a lot, the thing that we have to remember is it's a lot easier to surveil these systems than it is to intervene. So in many ways, it's like having one police car for the entire highway system of Italy to, you know, for intervention. You know, you can see everything that's happening, but you've got this one car because doing any having any kind of intervention capacity at scale is entirely too expensive we just no nation can afford to sort of intervene and, and be ready everywhere and yuka is so right we can't do much to prevent it so it's you know build as much hardness into these systems as we can have the ability to surveil them have the ability to attribute 
uh, if there's a, a bad actor that's done something, and then we can, you know, then we have our whole menu of political and other options. And I guess the finally, the, the other factor, Yuka, is that uh, we need greater resilience. That means probably we need more redundancy, the ability to switch over to other cables quickly uh, if a cable is taken out and so on. How are we doing on that area? Yes, I, I think our business is being taken care of. Is taking care of it uh, right now. That's how the internet would work. It's uh, the more we have cables everywhere, the messages would be relayed through a new route. Nobody knows where it's going. It simply goes around the globe, and there would be, of course, then jams, and then messages would be categorized based on price, etc. But uh, nobody will be able to switch off the uh, entire global communications yet. But temporarily, still, we are in a situation where, where aerial damage can be big by hitting these communication cables, because so far you don't have any relevant amount of capacity transferable to the satellite systems. But even that will be seen in future when, when uh, those who have bought and uh, op opted in would, would be shifting their services, uh, the most important part, to so satellite comms, and they would be more resilient. I think this is one of these things where the technology is, uh, is helping us quite soon. I'd like to mention, going back a little bit, but we must pay attention to, uh, to the fact that BRICS, you know BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, they have a, a sea cable connecting these countries, which could indicate an idea, of course, an earlier idea of uh, maintaining some sort of communication. And uh, in case there will be disturbances on, on the other side. And also we need to bear in mind that the Russian uh, government has explained, it was five years ago already, that they have uh, created a system where they will in need, in case of need, they will cut entirely the Russian internet, the Russian internet. They will cut it off from the international internet and it keeps working, both the military and civilian version. And they said they tested it. So, and I think it's quite credible because after all, it comes to a country like Russia. It only comes from the internet arrives along some cables and they, the points are not endlessly numbered. It's uh, just a few points. If you choke them off, then you have a separate, separated internet. So they have a. Uh, I think there are possibilities to, 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 in the con in the context of uh, something else always going on, a military widening a military conflict or having a new stage. It's possible that they are preparing to damage us in the unforeseen ways. Well, thank you very much, Yuka uh, Salvalainen. Thanks, Chris Kremitas, uh, Courtney. We have to end it there for this week. Plenty of food for thought uh, about some of the things that are uh, uh, awaiting us beneath the seas. I'll end it there. And the next edition of the Friends of Europe Frankly Speaking podcast will be with you soon. But for today, goodbye. We'll leave it there for today. If you haven't already, consider subscribing to the Frankly Speaking podcast newsletter or following us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. 
And if you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review or a rating, as it truly helps us reach more curious minds like yours. And don't forget to tune in again this time next week.